Welcome to the Laravel IO podcast. My name is Sean McCool, and I'm here with Taylor Otwell and Jeffrey Way. Thanks a lot for joining us, guys. Thank you. Thank you. It's, it's Again, it's been a while. We should try to get a little bit more uh, regular recording going. We'll get there. We're working on it. Work in progress. Baby steps. Yeah. Uh, well, you want to just get right into it? Because I know, Taylor, you have a pretty big announcement to make. Yeah. So today, uh, today on Twitter, I announced that basically what was known as Laravel 4.3 is going to just be Laravel 5.0, uh, mainly because um, we have changed the folder structure around a little bit in the main uh, Laravel slash Laravel repository. And it just kind of that philosophy changed, I feel like, and the direction we're heading with that, that folder structure uh, kind of warrants like a new version, even if the core code itself does not really have that many breaking changes. Um, just that whole kind of, that front-facing part of it is so different, I think, that it warrants uh, a Laravel 5.0 tag. And even just strictly for convenience, for, um, you know, Googling for resources and for package maintainers to have that clean break, it's pretty nice. So I know that you announced uh, 4.3 and the kind of some of the features in 4.3 at the Laracon EU event. Yeah. Um, you want to talk really quick about kind of some of those changes you're talking about that make you want to switch to 5.0 instead of 4? Yeah, so in, in Laravel 4.x, we basically had a, what I like to think of as a very Rails-inspired directory structure where we had a, uh, uh, basically the main focus, I would say, is that models directory has kind of been the um, the point of contention and discussion over the past year or so. And with Laravel 5.0, we're moving to more of a, um, I don't know. It doesn't really copy, I wouldn't say, any any one framework. It's kind of a new setup so that your app directory is basically separated from all of your Laravel configuration. And it's it's just a PSR4 namespace folder. So you have app HTTP controllers, app console, or uh, whatever you want to put in there, app repositories, app services. So it kind of uh, eliminates that that question with a model directory of basically the first thing people run into is I have a class that's not tied to a database record. Where do I put that? And obviously putting it in models doesn't make sense. So basically we've been recommending people to just like delete that models directory and create some other directory to put your stuff. So we're basically trying to align like the default folder structure with um, kind of a version of what, people have been doing anyway with their projects, which is organizing them a little bit better, a little cleaner and trying to find a good, uh, a good common ground. We can all start from that. That's uh, robust enough to grow with you so that if you have a large application, this folder structure is, is set up in such a way that you're not going to have to do a lot of radical rearranging if you don't want to. And um, at the same time, it's customizable enough still that you can basically do what you want. So, it's basically just trying to steer people in a little bit better direction. Um, this is getting a little long-winded, but th- then also with Laravel 5, or with what used to be formerly known as 4.3, uh, we've introduced Illuminate Contracts component, which basically define interfaces for all of the major components of Laravel. So, for example, there's a mailer interface, there's a queue interface, there's a even a container interface, and a router interface. And what that lets you do is instead of type hinting, you know, um, illuminate slash mail slash mailer, a hard dependency on that Laravel implementation, you can just type hint illuminate contracts mailer and depend on that interface. That kind of decouples you from the underlying implementation of the framework and makes your, your code just quite a bit more free of uh, hard dependencies on Laravel, lets you write out kind of a more flexible, easier to test, easier to work with code base. Uh, so that's a real exciting feature, and I know a lot of people are pretty excited about that if you're building larger applications. And, of course, there were a host of other features like uh, route caching to drastically speed up large applications, uh, method dependency injection on controllers and various other places, and then, of course, the new validation stuff, which Jeffrey has uh, posted on Laracast. I posted all of it on Laracasts. Although yeah, I do want to complain a little bit because every video is like, oh, my favorite new thing in Laravel 4.3, <laughs> and now nobody's going to know what that's referring to. It's like a PHP 7. Yeah, exactly. So <laughs> I'm going to have to like overdub those where it goes 5.0 <laughs> instead of yeah. 4. Like one month after we're all laughing about PHP being so dumb for 
having this big branding PHP 6 issue, we do like the exact same thing. It's not the exact same thing. <laughs> um, Jeffrey, so what do you think of the new folder structure? I love it. I, I'm, I think this is maybe the best. I don't know. Obviously, the changes from 3. Point whatever to 4.0 were massive. Like, I can't even remember coding in Laravel 3. It's so yeah. much better now. But at least since then, the upgrades to 4. Point, uh, I'm even saying 4.3 again. The upgrade from 4 to 5 is pretty massive. So, like, a lot of it for me is it just gets rid of so much of the boilerplate. So, like Taylor was saying, there are these certain things that you basically do with every single project. You know, like we were saying, where you will end up creating some directory for your actual application, your domain. And then you have to go to your composer.json file and then register that with PSR0 or PSR4. So it just takes all of that boilerplate and just gets rid of it. And so, it, yeah, it's definitely going to end up with people asking, like, where'd the models directory go? Or where's start.php, you know? So there's basic questions like that. But once they get beyond that, I think everyone's going to like it much more. That sort of begs the question to me. Jeffrey, you do a lot of education about Laravel and, you know, this kind of stuff in general. What do you think about the folder structure from an educational standpoint or from, from a beginner coming into the system? How do you think that uh, that experience is going to change uh, if you're a beginner coming into four versus a beginner coming into five? Yeah, I don't know. Like, part of me wants to say it's going to be easier. I don't know. I'd love to hear what Taylor thinks on this. I think the learning curve will be a, a little bit higher. I don't know. I, I've... I've talked to some people, and this is something I hadn't thought about, but many people had noted that the transition from CodeIgniter to Laravel was actually pretty difficult. And I think that's almost less to do with the framework and more just the fact that these things like Composer actually exist. So when we were using CodeIgniter, that just wasn't there, you know? So now it's like if they want to switch over, not only do they have to learn about this new framework, but they also have to learn about Composer. They also have to learn what PSR even means and what each of the numbers refers to. So it's almost not even related to Laravel as much as just saying, yeah, there's some new stuff in the PHP world that you need to come to terms with before you can kind of get started with this. But I don't know. Um, it's it's hard because, like, and this does come from the Rails community, that idea that everything goes in the models directory. And and we could, we quickly learn that this breaks down pretty quickly. However, people have gotten really comfortable with that. So one of the first things when when Taylor announced this and I was starting to cover it on Laracast is everyone's asking where that directory went. And it's like they have no idea where to put this stuff anymore, even though in reality we've made it much easier for them. I think the thing I like about the folder structures from an educational standpoint is that now a lot of those special configuration files are moved into service providers. So yeah. if you need to do a little bit of special configuration or something on your, on your Laravel, then you go into the service providers. You can automatically kind of see what they do and, it kind of teaches you how to make your own just implicitly. Yeah, I feel like that's one of the main main things that makes Laravel 5 more internally consistent with itself. And one of the things I think makes it easier to approach and easier to understand is previously, like you mentioned, the core used service providers like for everything. And service providers were like the main kind of foundation of how everything ties together. But then in your application, we had this start directory with like these weird flat files that served as kind of hacky service provider type things. And the framework was not consistent with your application. So now it's very consistent all across the board where you have in your app config a list of service providers for the core of the framework and then a list of four or five app service providers and everything is booted and configured through those container service providers. And it's just much more internally consistent that way. And your app, um, I would say, like behaves in more expected ways, if that makes sense, because it's all service provider driven and these magic start files and uh, filter files aren't being included at like magic random times that you don't know when that's happening. Right. And so now we just have, you know, like a route service provider and a filter service provider that, um, you know, they both include some shortcuts for registering stuff, but it's very obvious when that stuff is happening. They're getting registered with all the other service providers and it's part of that whole bootstrap process. So in my opinion, that makes more sense and it's less kind of questions as to how things are happening. Because all you really need to think about is Laravel starts up, it boots all the service providers, and then it hands the request off to the router, and that's really all there is to it. Yeah, so it's kind of like you refactored the system into a less complicated structure. 
Yeah, yeah, I think so. I mean, I think it's easier to reason about as a framework. Like, it's easier to understand what's happening. And better architected code is like that a lot of times, you know. I mean, if things are architected nicely and set up nicely, it's it's easier to understand. So, yeah, it is, I think overall it just feels like less hacky on the default structure, like less hacky files hanging around out there and more, you know, organized service providers, which we were even rec- we were recommending. You know, I mean, like even like last year in my book, I was like, hey, put put event registrations or put so and so in service providers. It will help you organize things better. So it just kind of gets the default structure more in line with all that stuff. So kind of related to your announcements with about 4.3 and then, of course, 5. Uh, what did you think of the, the conference in Amsterdam? It was insane. I loved it. I think every Laracon has gotten better than the last one. I think this was the best Laracon I've been to yet. If you're completely honest, how huge of an impact do you think Jeffrey not being there made? Oh, oh gosh. Stop. So many people ask about him. It's true, Truly. right? Yeah, he was he was mentioned in like half of the talks, I think. Yeah, well, I mean, just Laracast alone, of course, comes <laughs> up in like every talk. Yeah, it's from Lara. It's because I'm like head cheerleader. That's it. Just a cheerleader. <laughs> Is it Hi, weird guys. to you to kind of be have so much exposure, Jeffrey? Does that does that how does that feel? I don't know when it happened. You know, it's 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 weird. It all it all came from like when I worked at Envato and the the site I managed had had so many readers. It was like all these people knew my name, and I was just still like any other developer. I was just talking about stuff I thought was cool, like everyone. And it was just that this specific site gave me so much exposure. So, like, when it came around to Laravel, I suddenly had this opportunity to be like, hey, I like this. Everyone check it out. And uh, just the simple fact that I had so many followers, I think, was I was lucky enough to have a lot of people come around and check it out. Um Yeah. I don't have much to say on this. <laughs> He's a superstar. I mean, what what Laracast is doing though is is so um it's never been done before in PHP really, you know, for it's a framework to have its own site full with that many educational videos. I mean, the only thing even close would be like in the Rails world and I feel like none of that was even as polished as Laracast is. As far as I yeah, can it, tell, um Laracast no, nothing like it has ever been done in that scale. Yeah. Well, obviously it stems from Railscasts, and that was so right. big for the Rails community. So that's mm-hmm. kind of my inspiration for it. And again, it's not just Laravel, so it's like just the PHP community in general. We never had anything like that, you know? So Yeah. Yeah, it's been fun to watch it grow. Like, I can't believe how much it's grown. For example, I was looking mm-hmm. at analytics the other day, and there were like over a million page views on the site last month. I mean, like, that is crazy when you think about it. So do you feel like people get an inaccurate view of you, Jeffrey, um, when you're creating all this educational material? Do you think that maybe a lot of people really, like, look up to you and, and that affects them uh, and the way they think of themselves? <laughs> um, I'm not sure what you're asking. So do I change the way they think of themselves? Do you think you cause imposter syndrome in other people? Right. Oh, God, no. I have imposter syndrome myself. I think I have it worse than most people. I think of, I think about this stuff all the time. It's why I bring it up in so many podcasts that I've been on. Just this idea that you always feel like you're falling behind. It's one of those things like you either have it and you can immediately identify with it or you don't get it. And no, there's no wrong or right. It's just kind of, I don't know, how you were brought up or, or how you think about things. Um, I don't know. I, I hope I don't give people imposter syndrome because I have it too. I was just wondering if you've heard about this initiative that Kayla Daniels and some other people are putting forward called No Capes. Only lightly. Can you tell me about it? Yeah. Um, so right now she's doing live Q&A sessions with people who are kind of well-known speakers and uh, well-known community members and package developers. And her goal is kind of to try to demystify some of these things. Community involvement, speaking, open source development. I think... The idea is that some some people get looked at as kind of like superheroes and get really looked up to. And I think what she's trying to do is kind of bridge the gap a little bit and make people kind of understand where the, where these people are coming from and, and you know, I guess try to normalize it all. Does, does that make sense? Absolutely. I think it's a great idea. What do you think, Taylor? Yeah, I think that sounds really cool. I always really enjoy just hearing from other devs, you know, about – their experiences, how they feel as a developer, kind of where they're at personally with development. I think I always find that interesting. 
I think that she's meeting uh, and recording actually today. So assuming I release this on the timeline I want to, it'll already be available when this podcast comes out. And it should be an interview with Ross Tuck, which I think you both know personally. Yeah, yeah, he's an yeah. awesome speaker. So is the goal, it sounds like the goal is to help you see or maybe uh, view these developers like as a peer and not as like a this kind of mystical person on Mount Olympus, this demigod, so to speak. Yeah, I think so. I think um, I'm really interested to see kind of like this first video they come out with because I think it'll help me get a better idea of what it's all about. Yeah, for sure. But do you guys think that certain developers aren't approachable? I'm trying to think if I actually feel that way. Like, for example, I could tweet, for example, Uncle Bob right now, and he would respond to me. So there isn't that separation, sort of like developer royalty versus, you know, everyone else. I don't know if that necessarily exists. I think it's more about the feelings that a person has uh, than it is about the ability to make a communication. So if you feel very bold or if you feel like it's not a big deal to reach out and start interacting with somebody, if you feel like it's not a big deal to put yourself out in front of many, many eyes, then that's one thing. And then you have a lot of opportunity just from having that mindset, right? But what if you don't? What, what if, um, what if you feel nervous about even exposing your ideas? For example, you join a company and you have some ideas about how to accomplish a goal, but you kind of stay quiet because you don't feel like you really fit there or like your communications are going to be a lower quality or, or something like that. Okay. So, yeah, this really is about imposter syndrome. Okay. And yeah, it, I'm excited to watch. I assume she's doing like a series of these with a different developer each time. Yeah, I think I, I think that she has three planned now. Um but I do know that probably right now at the same time recording this, they're recording their talk. Very cool. Yeah, that's pretty cool. So speaking of kind of inferiority and imposter syndrome, Taylor, you were talking about a little bit about inferiority complex kind of before we started recording. Do you want to kind of give me an idea of what, what that was all about? Yeah. So at Laricon, uh, at Laricon EU, um, I had this discussion with Matthias, I guess is, is, is how you pronounce his name, but forgive me if that's wrong. But I had a conversation with him about how, um, you know, PHP for so long has kind of been looked at with derision, even amongst uh, even PHP developers themselves have maybe felt like um, they're working on like an inferior language and it does. It's not as cool as some other languages or maybe it's even just not as it's not as good as other languages and you can't build good code in PHP. And we were talking about how after years of that, having kind of this PHP inferiority complex amongst ourselves, we've actually worked so hard to learn all these kind of advanced patterns and topics and, and architecture that we've actually surpassed some of the communities that we were looking up to or we thought were better so that like for example if you look at the the discussions that php is having or a lot of php developers are having amongst themselves now it's about things like you know of course unit testing but even beyond unit testing different styles of unit testing and, and bdd and we have bhat and php spec and then we have domain driven design and all kinds of various approaches to architecture and we debate these things a lot and it's like basically a common topic now in PHP and maybe you could say even more so than other languages that we thought were so much better and so much higher than PHP. So Matthias was saying he felt like PHP is or a lot of these developers have lived so long feeling in fear that it's made them work a lot harder to learn all this stuff, and we've actually progressed really far in that we can be proud, basically, of where we're at with PHP now, which I found really interesting. Because, I mean, I'm sure we can all relate to how the conversation has changed so much um, just within the Laravel community, but I think even within the wider PHP community, it's it's changed so much in the past couple of years. Oh, my goodness. I mean, even a few years ago, telling someone that primarily you were a PHP developer, you'd be embarrassed or, or almost laughed at. And that's not a joke. You know, so when you yeah. think about how things have changed even since 2010, it's almost mind boggling. It's so drastically different than it was. You know, like back then it's like predominantly obviously not totally, but predominantly if you're thinking of PHP, people are doing WordPress themes. You know, people are just building little freelance WordPress sites and that's it, while the rest of the development community kind of sneers at them. You know, I'm yeah. generalizing there, but that's honestly, like, I've been around it so much 
that's not uh, stretching the truth at all. So you compare then to now, and it, it's it's just such a massive difference. It's pretty yeah. exciting. I mean, when you think about even like, I know people don't like to focus on tooling too much, but at the end of the day, we're using tools. And when you think about like Laravel and using PHP spec and and even things like Forge, these things that make development so massively easier than they were five years ago. Uh, yeah, it's a really good time for the community, I think. As well yeah, as Symphony and Composer and everything else that mixes into that. Yeah, I think it's really interesting, too, that, well, I mean, with Laravel 5.0, I feel like we're trying to make writing better code easier. I mean, writing writing good code is hard, and we're, we're never going to make writing really robust, well-architected, well-architected applications just cut and paste and super easy because those kinds of design decisions are just always going to be hard. But I think we're we're making it easier for people to get on the right track and kind of our education focus is shifting so that we're starting people off on a better path um, and opening doors to them um, that might not have been open or, or we might not have talked about, you know, one or two years ago. So, yeah, I think that's, a, that's another big focus of Laravel five is kind of, opening people's eyes a little more to maybe some other ways to architect things, some better ways to set things up and, and get them on a, on a better path. If we're making the assertion that PHP has come a long way from, for example, a year ago, are, are we talking really, we're not really talking about the language. We're talking about what's perceived as the community, right? Yeah. Yeah. We're not both, talking about right? the language. I don't, yeah, both, but I think we're mainly talking about, the community because let's say PHP 5.4 had never come out and we were still on PHP 5.3, you know, which is however many years old and we didn't have traits or shorter rates. I feel like the discussions would probably still be the same pretty much. You know what I mean? Like, I don't think that that had that big of a shift on the direction of like the direction of PHP as a community, so to speak. Yeah, that's true. The bigger difference would have been PHP 4. Like Taylor, you didn't even use PHP 4, right? I've never used anything before PHP yeah, 5.3. Yeah, exactly. So it's like the the, the change from 4 to 5 was pretty massive. I mean, it, yeah. PHP 4, it's like at the time, yeah, people had a right to mock it because we were just missing out on so many fundamental things. And yeah. like we've talked about before, so many people from other communities, they would still continue to judge PHP and the community in general based upon their usage of of version four back when they were younger developers, you know, and they forget that just like they've matured, everyone else has matured and we're not still those same people from five or 10 years ago. Yeah. So on a related note, I had a conversation with uh, Adam Wathan. I think Wathan is his last name. I, I have actually talked to him and met with him personally a number of times and I feel really bad for, for not knowing, but we were talking about TDD and he was kind of sharing some of his experiences and how, it was really hard to kind of for him to get his head wrapped around it because it's there's no clear middle ground between either not doing TDD at all or being a guru. It's like it's either like oh my god you're you're an awful developer because you don't TDD, which you know of course is a really bad attitude, or you're suddenly like some TDD guru who's tweeting all day about how TDD is the only way, right? And it feels like there's not really anybody representing any middle ground. And even if the ideal goal is to do something like uncle Bob style TDD or something like that, we don't seem to have a very clear idea of what it looks like when you transition from one point to another. Now, Jeffrey, do you have any feelings on that? Like when it comes to studying something huge, like testing, for example, which is an easy example because we've talked a lot about it on the podcast and in our community, you see how there's this like either a state of no testing or a state of uh, you really get testing. You're, you're solid. You're good to go. But, you know, what does that middle ground look like? And do you think that we could maybe improve the conversation if we could flesh out a little bit of how that middle ground looks? Uh, I don't know. This is something we talk about a lot. And the the basic truth of it, if we were to estimate, is like five, maybe 10, if we're being generous, 10 percent of the PHP community is actually testing their their applications. So obviously this isn't a good thing. So it either means that one, like there's just uh, this small group of people who are evangelizing it and everyone's just saying, no, that's not a good idea. Or maybe the reality is everyone's intrigued by it, but at the end of the day, 
They have jobs to do. They have managers to I can't think of the word managers to follow. And they just don't have enough hours in the day to actually learn this stuff. And I think that's the biggest problem. Like the if you think of like testing as a gate, you have all of these people on the other side of the gate saying you need to be doing this. So these are like some people like Constantine, the creator of the hat and PHP spec. So they are great. But then at the same time, all the people on the other side of the gate want to get in. But it's just so much learning. And they're basically being told, well, you need to invest hundreds of hours, literally hundreds of hours into this before you will be ready to actually get started. So it's not something where it's like, oh, yeah, I can just pick this up really quickly. And if it feels that way to to any of us or anyone listening, you may be forgetting just how hard it actually was. Just even the simple thing like thinking in terms of what testable code actually looks like. We had to learn that. You know, it's not something that you just naturally understand. What does testable code look like? You know immediately now, but you didn't maybe before. So people are intrigued by it. But then, and we talked about this a little bit on Twitter, Sean, when it comes to like terminology, my view is that it just gets overwhelming for them. They hear about like, just think of the, the types of testing off the top of my head, like unit testing or integration, functional acceptance. And then other communities have different names like end to end tests. Uh, I believe the Rails community, if they're testing their models, they just call it model tests. But before they called them unit tests. But then other communities would say, no, testing active record is not a unit test. That would be an integration test. And then you have other things like system tests. And then we have frameworks and tooling like mockery and prophecy and mink and hat and codeception and PHP spec and PHP unit. Already just talking about this, it's like overwhelming for me. And I've been doing this like literally for years. I feel confident in it. But when I find myself trying to explain it to people, even on Laracast, I immediately see how overwhelming it must feel. And then you just go into like other kinds of terminology, like what is a mock? What is a stub? Is a, a dummy the same thing as a mock or is a, a, a double sort of a general word for it or fakes or spies? It's just overwhelming. And we can tell people like, look, you just need to learn this. This is part of the the jargon. And you know what? It's like that's true. But at the same time, that doesn't really help them when they're intrigued by it, but they also have jobs to do, and they have to be able to justify such a massive investment into learning this stuff. And I think at the end of the day, people just choose not to do it at all. What do you guys think? <laughs> I think that I saw this at my first job, that there were kind of two kinds of programmers. I'd like to get your thoughts on this, but... They were programmers that just worked eight to five, right? And they were just like programming to feed their family. And they weren't really like, I would say programming like as a craft, I guess you could say. And I, I can't necessarily find fault with that. I mean, obviously they're just, they just have a job. Their job feeds their family. They have other interests and other hobbies. Maybe they like water skiing or collecting stamps or whatever. But, and then you had people like, I feel like I was more in this camp and, and some of the other people I knew which I feel like was maybe a minority camp in this enterprise um, environment where like we coded kind of more as a hobby and like as a craft and it just happened to be our job too. So almost like an NBA player, you know, like they love basketball and they just happen to get paid for it because they, they're good at it. And so we would hack on stuff at night and, and learn about testing and stuff. But do you think it's, do you think it's even feasible for someone that kind of has that mentality of I'm going to be an eight to five programmer to, to learn something that well, or I guess it would take a lot longer. Do you know Roy Osharov? No. Yeah. Uh, he's like a really huge name uh, in, in education and, and TDD and, and a lot of things, really. Uh, I saw a really interesting talk from him where he was talking about the responsibilities of leading a team, and sometimes that means taking a little bit of time to specifically kind of bring somebody into something new and make it comfortable and make it work for them personally because investing in your team really makes a difference. And so I, I really think that people who have, you know, a kind of rabid uh, passion for, for programming, people who just do it for the love of the game, um, you know, they have a lot, probably a lot of self-motivation and there's probably a lot going on there that makes picking up new things easier um, but I think that there's maybe some responsibility in the leaders of the team, like maybe you're a lead developer or, or something along those lines, to kind of 
make some of these things desirable. And, and I can understand somebody kind of rejecting some of these things because they feel intimidated or, or frustrated. But I think that it's, it's, Jeffrey, and I want to hear kind of a little bit from you. Do you feel that people really just do not want to, to explore new things and they just want to do the same grind every day sometimes? Or do you think it's something different? I think I'm going to be slanted because like my, my whole business is around dealing with people who, who actually have that gene, you know, where they just want to keep learning more and more. The type of people who are almost obsessed, like I would say all three of us, we kind of have that obsessiveness where you want to just learn all of this new stuff. When a new version of PHP is released, you immediately want to see what are the new things I can use. And we forget, like, there's a big percentage of the development community where they're just not that invested. They have families. They have other things that take more priority for them then maybe it does for us. And maybe that's sad for us at the end of the day. I don't know. But um, I love my family, just for the record. <laughs> I really no, like I'm, the... I'm not like saying the... that we reject our families, but I'm saying like <laughs> we do have some kind of gene where you want to dig into this. The fact that you're going to all these books from 20 years ago uh, is a testament to you and anyone else who does that. But my instinct is most developers aren't that way. I think Sean brought up a, a really good point about people that are either lead developers or let's even just say um, software kind of project managers or just any kind of team lead where I was talking about, you know, people that they have other responsibilities outside of work, you know, for whatever reason or they have hobbies or maybe it's not even their choice, you know, just life circumstances. They, they can't code outside of work. Maybe it's, you know, if the responsibility of someone like a team leader to say, Hey, this team of four or five people is a little behind in a certain area. You know, this person's behind in one period. He's behind in testing or she's behind in this kind of architecture. And so when they say we're going to have a, a unit testing boot camp this week and all week, they just, they learn, they learn testing and they learn about mocking and stuff. And I, you're not going to come out, you know, knowing everything there is to know about testing, but you're going to come out a heck of a lot better than when you started. So I think putting some responsibility or some, uh, you know, kind of pinning it on if you're a team leader or you're a dev or you're a manager, you need to be making time for education in your workplace or your team is not going to thrive and not going to grow. I wrote a blog post uh, that had some some of this in it, in my opinion, is that businesses have an ethical responsibility to invest in their in their developers. I think that it's not only ethical; it just makes good sense if your developers have a more passion for what they're doing, which you know really I think comes from growth. Maybe this isn't universally true, but I'm going to just for now say it is in in my mind. If you're having a good time and you're feeling like you're making progress in your life, I mean. That makes sense to me as being a reason to feel good about yourself. So I think that if a company can, it doesn't have to be like a massive investment, but create an environment where, you know, you're given a little bit of freedom to, to improve yourself and, and it's encouraged. I think that that could really lead to a lot of, uh, a higher quality of life for the developers. But also, um, of course, I think it, can lead to an improved business as well. I can understand that in a lot of situations, you don't need better developers. You need people to churn something out really quick over and over again. There's a lot of different types of programming. It's not all like enterprise applications. Most of them aren't, if you think about it. Yeah. Most things are, you know, to some extent, throwaway applications or things that just won't have that massive, that huge of a life. Yeah. yeah. (laughs) I've worked on applications that were throwaway and applications that were written before I was born. So it's a pretty big mix. I think one thing is... Like, people always ask me a lot how to approach, like, management on this kind of thing. And one thing we did at my my first job, which might be useful to other people, is, like, we all kind of approached them as, like, a unified front so that, like, we had five or six people on our development team, and we could all approach um, our manager and say, hey, we're going to do this for a week. We're going to really work on testing this week. And we're all there, and it's like, what are they going to do, you know, like, we're all saying, like, this is what we're going to do. We need to do this. And I find, like, if you're kind of a unified front like that, it's easier to kind of push management a certain way. <laughs> it's kind of easier to bully them if you're, like, in a gang. So, <laughs> um, 
Yeah, that seemed to work a little bit better rather than like one person saying, hey, what do you think about this? And there's it's easy to brush off, you know what I mean? No, absolutely. And then like even more than that, though, the hard part is, yes, you have like a team of developers, but then you also have the smaller companies where they don't really have a huge development branch. Maybe they just have literally one developer or two guys handling all of their server and, and development stuff. So, yeah, it gets, it's hard because it's like we're trying to want, try to, we're trying to find a one size fits all approach and it, you're dealing with so many different circumstances that I just think it becomes really difficult. In the case of like encouraging people to test more, like, I don't know if there's is there any need to really push it that much. People will decide for themselves if it's if it's appropriate or not. Um, I don't know. I go back and forth on this. It's rough also because, for example, if I am studying something really hard, like let's just use TDD as an example. It's it's a fight to work through that. Um, I think that most most everyone could agree with this. And what you have to do is I had to steel myself to say I'm committed to this. And as a result of of preparing myself and just to force myself through it, maybe, you know, I, I developed this mentality where I'm really gung-ho about it. I'm really evangelical about it. I talk to people a lot about it because this is kind of my, I don't know, my outlet right now. This is kind of my way of helps me to accomplish my goal. I, I worry sometimes that maybe a lot of us, um, I'm sure I'm guilty of this, have made it seem like this is something that, that people really need to be doing, or maybe you you look at where you came from and say, okay, I've been re- working really hard at TDD. I look back at where I was before I was doing a lot of that, and you know, I look down upon my previous self. Maybe people look uh, down on other people for that kind of reason, because, you know, like I said, you, it feels like you have to steal yourself and really kind of dig in and prepare sometimes with these things. Do you think that there's a, a more healthy way of maybe – uh, communicating these ideas and maybe presenting yourself in a way that doesn't have such negative impact on others. That's so hard because like it's, it's in human nature to get excited about the things you're doing. Right. So I don't know, like when, when we're talking on Twitter, it's like, it's very easy to see what things people are focused on right now because that's the thing they most tweet about. So like, I don't think you should feel bad that you're excited by certain technologies and you can actually vocalize that you feel so much better as a result. But it is true. I think people sometimes, I don't know if it's even fair, but people maybe interpret that as saying, oh, well, I'm not doing that. So you're saying I'm unprofessional or, you know, there's no denying that there's there is a certain group who would say you aren't professional if you're not doing this. And then maybe, I don't know, people's um protective instinct clicks in and they immediately want to reject it without considering it on no basis. I don't know. This is something I think about at Laracast quite a bit, and uh, it's a very tough one. Taylor, so you're working on Laravel basically a lot more than you used to, I I assume, because you're going kind of part-time at uh, your current job. Um, How are you handling all of the influx of issues and pull requests versus something like you know, working on new features for Laravel 5, that kind of thing? Oh, well, I kind of just evaluate it, like, when the week starts. So this week, since we had had um, Laracon EU and, and the week, my last Laravel week before that was um, I was busy with a few other things. So this was really the first week I've, I've had a full Laravel week, all five days, and so GitHub was pretty backed up. Um, so I've mainly been managing GitHub most of this week. But honestly, though, I mean, when you have a full week totally clear, you can work on I can work on both. Usually, like I might work on all GitHub stuff one in the morning and then all kind of Laravel 5 stuff in the afternoon. But at the same time, like so much Laravel 5 work has been done, I feel like already. Like I feel like we're way ahead of schedule compared to how we usually do releases. I don't feel um, as urgent to work on Laravel 5 like all the time. I don't feel as rushed. So I think probably like in my next Laravel week, I'm really going to focus on documentation um, because GitHub will be pretty cleaned up and Laravel 5 is in a pretty good spot. And I really want to focus on writing really good documentation for Laravel 5 and a good upgrade guide and just kind of revamp that whole thing. So that's probably what I'll work on next. And um, of course, we had like a, we had a big uh, deal with pull requests and issues this week. So we should I go into that for a second, please? Okay, so um, 
kind of something that's been coming for like a long time is as Laravel has gotten more popular, um, it's gotten harder and harder to maintain the the issues. I would say mainly at the issues more so than the pull requests. Um, because of course with GitHub issues, anyone can just post text in a text box on GitHub that they're having X problem and post it. And there's not really any streamlined way for me to recreate that issue so that if someone comes to Laravel framework and says, Hey, polymorphic situations don't work right when your models are set up in this certain way and you have these certain values in your database columns. And it's like, you know, first Thanks for telling me about this, but also it's going to take like 15 minutes just to recreate this setup, just to get my database set up with the proper migrations and eloquent models. And maybe you have like mutators on your eloquent models or like you're overriding your eloquent model a certain way. And so that's just like not scalable, period. And one thing I really like from like the JavaScript world is they have this nice like thing where I'm sure people have seen these JavaScript fiddles where you can have just like a little self-contained demo of a bug. And I really want that in Laravel. And so I made this like really controversial decision to just totally turn off bug reports on Laravel. And just, they're just not there. You can only do pull requests. There are no so more bugs. Basi- now. Dun, dun, dun. <laughs> yeah. We, we, we solved that problem, but basically you can report a bug now in, in two ways. You can one, um, you can send a pull request that only contains a failing unit test. You don't, you're not even required to solve the bug, but just if you can write a test that fails and basically demonstrate this bug in test form, we will accept that as a pull request, you know, as an issue report. Um, but secondly, if you, if you can't write a unit test for whatever reason, um, uh, maybe you don't know how, or it's a pretty complicated example with like a lot of moving parts and you're not quite sure how to test it. Um, I've introduced this new, I guess you could say product called Laravel Life Raft, which basically will automate forking Laravel for you. And you can build basically like a demo of your bug in a fresh Laravel application. And then with Life Raft, you can automate just sending that pull request back to Laravel. And then any anyone that's using LifeRaft can just grab um, a copy of that and pull it down and run it on Laravel Homestead. So combining Homestead with LifeRaft kind of gives us like a streamlined way to send bug reports and little sandbox applications, if that makes sense. And so anyone can pull that down and run it on Homestead and maybe view your test route and say, oh, OK, here's how they've got this set up and. I can then I can go look in the core and find that bug, and I have a nice little demo application to uh, make sure it's fixed. And then, of course, um, I would write the unit test in that situation. So it's kind of the best of both worlds in a sense. I feel like it's still really easy for people to send an issue report because you can all you have to do is just recreate it, and you don't even have to do it in a unit test form, but just in a route would work. And it's really easy for you to send that to Laravel, but then at the same time, it's very easy for me and any other maintainers of the framework to not have to recreate those things by hand. We can just pull in the LifeRaft application and use it right there. So it's just a very streamlined, quick process um, for, for bug reports. And I feel like it's a pretty innovative thing. I've never seen a large open source project do this, so it's all very new. But I think it's going to work uh, really well and be really nice for both users and maintainers of Laravel. It's pretty cool because it speeds up the process so much. So I would imagine there's... When people do encounter bugs, it's like, well, I could submit a pull request, but I got to get this done. Or I could, you know, try to create a new project and fork the framework and then clone it and then reproduce it, then go back online and submit a PR. So now you can just type a couple commands and it will do all that stuff for you basically automatically. And it'll even yeah. parse like a, a markdown file. And that would be the right. pull requests body. Yeah. So right. it will make it so much faster for folks. Yeah, I think it makes it much faster. And I think uh, one thing I get asked a lot is how can I help with Laravel? And so one thing I built into LifeRaft was when you execute LifeRaft on your console, you can say LifeRaft grab and then a pull request number or ID. But you can also just say LifeRaft grab and it will grab you a random LifeRaft bug report that you can hack on if you've got a spare 30 minutes or a spare hour. And, you know, hey, I feel like contributing to Laravel or at least trying to just run a life ref grab and uh, start trying to figure out what's going wrong with that with that sandbox application. And then once yeah, you I figure like it out, a lot. 
it turns yeah. it into a game almost. Like, yeah, right. absolutely. So yeah, if you wanted somebody on your team to, to donate just a few hours, you know, on Friday, they could just do that. Whatever comes up is sort of their challenge for the day. I like yep. it. Yeah, like uh, Matt Stouffer was talking a little bit about contributing to open source at Laracon EU. And, of course, my boss at Uterscape, Ian, has has talked about various ways you can contribute to open source. And I feel like this is a very easy thing to tell people that, you know, someone like Matt said he wants his whole team contributing to open source in some way. But how do you do that? And I think this is a really good kind of like nugget you can give people to where, hey, just, you know, just use LifeRaff and grab an issue and see what you get. You know, if you don't like it, you can grab another one if you can't figure it out. But it's a really easy way to get started with contributing. That sounds really great. Oh, for for me, if I sometimes think that there might be a bug in the framework, I have to create a new instance just to see if it's just my own code interacting in a way I didn't foresee. So this is nice because you get like kind of like a sandboxed environment. It's a clean environment to, to play in and, and implement your bugs. So I, I really like having that, and I'm sure I'm going to be using it, if not only for that reason, actually. Yeah. Um, and I think yeah, it fits into nice. sort of the Laravel mindset, too, or the Laravel philosophy of taking these things that sometimes are just they take too long to implement, and you can run a couple commands, and you're done. You can move on with your work. So yeah. I like it. So somebody asked a question of us, and um, they want to know, do you think that people have to worry about major Laravel version changes occurring so rapidly? I, I'm kind of of the opinion that it's not so rapid compared to other frameworks. Like it's been, it will be a year and a half old Laravel four um, in November, which is just about on par with rails four going to rails five. Um, so I don't think it's too much. I have tried to be sensitive to that though with, um, Laravel 4.2 to Laravel 5, where if something is different, there usually is a way to use the old behavior if you want to. So like with the folder structure, like I mentioned at Laracon, there's a service provider you can just add that will basically run the, run Laravel 5.0 on the old folder structure. Cause that's just basically some configuration changes. So it will, it will do that for you. Um, so yeah, I've tried to build in like little backwards compatible things like that so that you can upgrade your code base to Laravel 5 and use new features while not drastically changing your, the structure of your application. So yeah, I've tried to play a nice balance between like Laravel has kind of always had this focus on being moving forward. And, but at the same time, I'm trying to at the same time be sensitive to people who cannot move extremely rapidly and give them ways to continue to upgrade while not wasting a lot of time moving things around in their application. It feels to me like Laravel has always kind of moved forward. And at first, my gut instinct is to say that Laravel has always moved forward rapidly. And I can see how that could be almost like a pejorative in some circles, like people think Mm -hmm. negatively of this. But at the same time, the way I feel about Laravel is that it keeps adapting to the situation that I'm in. So I almost feel like it's more of a staying alive type situation. Do you, do you have any input on that? Yeah, I can see that. I can see, you know, we've always talked about how, you know, we personally grow as developers. You know, all three of us are in a much different spot than you would say back in like Laravel three days. And we're thinking about different things and approaching things from different angles. And I feel like Laravel as a framework is kind of mirroring the personal growth of the community so that as the community grows and is interested in these new things, the framework is kind of organically growing along with them um, because it kind of reflects like it is really just a reflection of the community and where we're at, you know, and where what we're thinking about and how we're doing things. And it, it kind of grows with you. But yeah, you know, I mean, Laravel 5, Symphony and Zen, for example, are only on version 2, and Symphony's been out for 8 or 9 years. So it's definitely moving faster than a lot of other frameworks, but I think that's part of what makes Laravel interesting and unique and really attractive to a lot of people, is that it is always kind of evolving and growing and strengthening. So I like it, but I mean, I'm I'm sympathetic to some people's um, view that it moves too fast, but it's something that I think a lot of people enjoy at the same time. 
honestly, for me, I don't feel like it's moving that fast. Well, it's also hard because like we're thinking Laravel five, so you imagine this like massive life, but the yeah. really in some ways, I sort of think of Laravel four as sort of like the entry point for everyone. Yes, there was Laravel yeah. three, but correct me if I'm wrong, Taylor. Like the the time span from Laravel two to three just wasn't that long, right? Yeah, well, we're actually getting slower. So like from two to three was probably really quick, but then from three to four was only one year. And now from four to five is a year and a half. So uh, the time spans are getting longer in between the major upgrades. But I feel like going from three to four, that was like the biggest change, even bigger than from four to five. And I feel like Laravel four was like really the first modern Laravel, like the first real robust Laravel. Well, here's the way I would look at it. If I wanted to upgrade, for example, Laracast to 5.0, would it take me more than maybe an hour? No, I don't think so, especially if you're using the the service provider, the, the legacy structure service provider. I don't think it's going to. If you want to upgrade, what I would do, like if say you don't have time to change your whole folder structure immediately, go ahead and use the old folder structure and then move a little bit at a time. So I'm going to organize all my controllers this week and then all my console commands another week and uh, just kind of move it in increments like that because the the legacy provider will let you do that. You know, it will let you run that old structure and then as you have time or if you even want to, you can migrate your structure to how you want because really at the end of the day, that default folder structure, Laravel doesn't really care about that. That's all just configurable paths. You know, it doesn't care where all your code lives. So it's very easy to move around however you want. Right. So from that point of view, like, I don't really have a problem with it. We're not talking about new versions where it's like the framework was rewritten and the API is totally different. The like, framework's yeah. almost not different at all, actually. It's not. Exactly. Yeah. It's There's just hardly being, any changes. Right. It's just being harnessed. So I can't fathom how anyone would want to complain about it too much. It's like, yes, every year and a half, you may need to do a couple <laughs> hours worth of work to upgrade. But you're like Laravel 5 compared to 4, I would say, is significantly better. Like, an order of magnitude better, in my mind. To me, the changes between 4 and 5 are, are almost non-existent. It's very minor little things. I'm very happy to do them. But I think that if you become really dependent on the framework itself, like you're making Eloquent do things that it wasn't really supposed to do, or you're making this do other things, and then changes to those internal systems suddenly really dramatically affect your application, and it makes it hard to Im- upgrade. I think that it's almost like part of our responsibility to decouple um, the dependency on the framework from our application so that we can continue to use this framework as a tool and not be, you know, kind of like dependent on it to the level that we are dependent on the internal implementations of it. You know what I'm saying? Does that it might be I'm just rambling? Yeah, I think that makes sense. And I think Laravel 5 strikes a good balance of introducing features to help you do that. So, for example, the folder structure, all the interfaces are very much geared towards you building that kind of code. And then at the same time, it's a nice mix of kind of like what I would call like classic Laravel practical thing, quote unquote practical things. I mean, it's all pretty practical, but you know what I mean? Like um, like Laravel Socialite, which makes it very easy to do OAuth or, um, you know, the form request, which makes it really easy to do validation. So I think there's a good mix of like... Um, both ends of the spectrum, like very quick things, and then also things that are a little bit more abstract, I guess you could say. I don't feel like I'm wording it right, but just help you. They're not really like hard, tangible features, but they kind of steer you in the right direction a little better. No, I think that it communicates something different. Like, I've been really into studying DDD and one of the core concepts is making the implicit explicit, and I really think that it helps to restructure things in a way that contain more communication, that express more to the people who are viewing them. I think this is really important, and it's something that probably we should just continue to pursue as a general part of what we're doing. Yeah, that makes sense. One last question, Taylor. Two parts. <laughs> uh, rhymes Two with, last no. questions. Laravel 5, PSR 2, and or... Semantic versioning, go. Gosh. Uh, let's see. PSR2, absolutely no problem with PSR2. It's simply like a logistical issue with pull requests and not making all of them invalid. 
So if we can ever get like our pull requests down pretty low, which we're actually at right now, um, we only have about 30 pull requests sitting on Laravel framework, mainly because I deleted the rest of the issues, but then it would be much more feasible to go to PSR2 um, because then we could just kind of like rebase those changes. So yeah, that's something I'll, I'll evaluate. I don't really have a firm answer on that. Uh, semantic versioning, I don't have a really good answer either, but it, it's going to work out the same either way. Like uh, Laravel is going to keep moving forward, period. So I think we can either decide like, are we okay mentally with like more major versions and not caring so much about that major version number, almost in like a Google Chrome kind of way? Or do we want to keep like kind of the, I call it guzzle style semantic versioning where the minor, the minor releases contain possibly minor breaking changes, you could say. So yeah, I don't I know. I, I don't an argument to be made for both. I don't really care strongly either way because it's not going to make me that much difference. It's more just, I guess, what the community's interested in. I have a really kind of love-hate relationship with standards. I feel like PHP has lacked a lot of standards. So if you walked into developing Python like, you know, a number of years ago, then the code style standard would just be PEP8, right? It's just taken for granted. Yeah. Uh, only recently did PHP really get PSR2, etc. So I think that maybe people are really super gung-ho about standards, and I understand interoperability standards as well. For example, PSR0 and PSR4 op- uh, auto-loading. Composer supports them. Many other systems support them. Uh, since they are standards, then you can code systems against them, and that makes a lot of sense to me. The thing that I'm struggling with is the fact that I want, I do not want to follow standards if my values suggest a different approach. So if I'm building something that, for example, would use the fig caching standard, uh, implementation or interface, whatever, I, I feel like my solution to the problem is, is really good for a, a specific use case and I cannot follow that standard and I can actually probably even do it better if I don't, then I I feel like I should be free to do so. I don't want to be shackled by standards. So an example would be PSR2, I really feel like, for example, one, I kind of want to force some of my team to not use curly braces for if statements and for statements and loops and stuff like that if they can at all be avoided because... You know, you can write code with with curly braces for your if statements and then refactor them down to where you don't need them anymore. You know, you can extract your classes, extract your methods, and then you have nice, clean code where each method has, like, you know, a maximum of, like, I don't know, four or five lines. And yeah. I, I think that that's a really interesting experiment that kind of forces you to design a little bit more thoroughly than you might have to otherwise. But I've gotten a lot of pushback about how that doesn't follow standards and how that's a, it's a big problem. Um, yeah. Do you have any opinion on that? Because I feel like I don't want to be shackled by standards, but I'm glad they exist. Yeah, I find that kind of funny. Like, you're actually trying to do something really, really cool or good, and, like, the standard would dictate you not to or don't, would be holding you back. Yeah, that's kind of interesting. I can see your point there. And I think they would be the first ones to say they don't care what you do. I mean, they care about, like, big frameworks, what they would do. But in terms of your everyday developer, they don't care. You know, this is... Completely an optional thing for the end user. That's you, Taylor. At least, <laughs> no, no, one thing, yeah. it, it is, I would say people using Laravel are far more likely to use kind of the Laravel-specific style guide. Maybe that's something to think about. Uh, it, just because you prefer that, it's also encouraging most of the people who use it to adopt it as well. I don't know if that's a problem in the least, but I don't know. Maybe it's worth considering. Yeah. At the end of the day, though, it's like this doesn't matter that much. To be frank, at least in, from my point of view, it's like we're not dealing with like massively important things. We're dealing with yeah. small things that are fun to talk about, but you know, they're not the things building applications. I mean, yeah, it's it's definitely something that's on my radar. But like, if someone were to say you can have PSR two or you can have Illuminate contracts, I would pick Illuminate contracts every day because it's going. That's what's going to I feel like bring the most benefit to people. So yeah, I mean, it is prioritized um, a little bit lower than some other things, but. Um, you know, of course, I'm not ruling it out entirely, but I just got to just one step at a time. Well, thank you guys so much. I think that uh, we're at, at time now. And as always, I really appreciate the chance to talk with you. I, I don't say this a whole lot, but, you know, without without you guys, this podcast wouldn't exist. And I, and I really I really enjoy doing this and I really find this to be a positive thing. So so thanks so much for for chatting with me. Thank you, yeah, Sean. Thanks for doing it. Someone Thank on Twitter you said you have, to, you have to say something in Dutch um, to close us out. Yeah. Uh, 
Thanks for listening and find a doc. <laughs> awesome. All right. Well, bye, guys. Bye, guys. Bye.